<laughs> if we were doing this on Zoom, you'd be seeing a quarter of my forehead right now, most likely, and most of the ceiling because that's how that works, right? <laughs> yeah. <Nice. laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> or just like one eyeball super zoomed in. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that would be trippy. I'm in for that. <laughs> yeah, go back into the room with the big reverb and then give us the, the one eyeball uh, <laughs> Zoom chat and then we're ready to go. Welcome to I'd Buy That for a Dollar, a podcast about inexpensive, common, and underappreciated records that are waiting to be rediscovered. I'm your host, Sean Hartman, and I am a used record salesman, musician, DJ, and podcast host. I just I decided I'm done with all the lies for this episode. <laughs> I've just got to be real. Oh, oh. <laughs> well, well, I am co-host. Jeremy Ruggles, I am studying alternative physics because I I don't believe in simulation theory, guys. <laughs> Where could this possibly be going? <laughs> when I bite into a slice of pumpkin pie, I say to myself, this has got to be real. <laughs> oh, that pumpkin was a low-hanging fruit. <laughs> <laughs> or vegetable. I am co-host Peter Cook, creator of a reboot TV series starring Cheryl Ladd, featuring music by Cheryl Lynn. It's called The Real Charlie's Angels. <laughs> oh, boy. All right, three out of four co-hosts delivering the low-hanging fruit. Let's see what you got, Leora. Well, I'm Leora Haas, and your love is my love. My love is your love, and our love is here to stay. Beautiful. Aw. Welcome back, Leora. Thank you. You were, like, poetic, and we were not. Do you guys feel the love? Yeah, in the form of poetry. I'm feeling the love, absolutely. I am definitely feeling the love, and, and thank you so much for having me back on the show. I am absolutely honored to be here, and... and um Really, really excited about this episode as well. So thank you. Yeah. Before we get into it, you want to tell the listeners a little about yourself if they missed the last time you were on talking about Melba Moore? Melba Moore. Oh, that was a time, wasn't it? So my name is Leora Haas, and um, I am an avid record collector and bin flipper. And I just love music and I am a music nerd. I'm one of those music sponges where I just love um, absorbing everything about it, whether it's by listening to it or reading about it or chatting with gentlemen such as yourselves and commiserating about it. So I'm all about absorbing the music and sharing the music like a sponge. That's Indeed. weird. <laughs> <laughs> the only weird part is that you came to the sponge twice in that description. Yeah, yeah. Sponge worthy. <laughs> I was just going to say, is this going to be a sponge worthy episode? This is definitely a sponge worthy episode. <laughs> beautiful, beautiful. 
Glad to know I'd buy that for a dollar is in that category. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, definitely. (laughs) Well, Liara, you are a, I believe, a self-proclaimed disco file. Would that be the way to say it? I don't know if that's the right way to say disco stew. (laughs) Um, Um, Yeah, I have disco propensities, if you will. Absolutely. (laughs) Well, it's very fitting that you're here for... uh, Who are you here for? Tell us. Well, tonight we are talking about the artist named Cheryl Lynn. And we're chatting about her self-titled debut album, Cheryl Lynn, released on Columbia Records in 1978. And um, this record peaked on the U.S. Billboard chart at number 23, ranked on the Billboard Soul LPs at number five. And this is actually the first of nine studio albums recorded by her, each of which included some contributions by some heavy hitters in the dance, R&B, soul, quiet storm kind of world, and um, encompassed some completely and absolutely to my delight, unexpected appearances. And I say completely and unexpected for me because of the fact that I am so real, I'm willing to admit, being the uh, disco file, as you say, that I am, that I was embarrassingly not hip to this particular record, and I am putting my head in my hands right now. <laughs> I was surprised. I, I reached out to you asking you to be on this ep- episode, expecting this to be just uh, right canon for you. Um, but Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, the thing is, though, at the same time, that's... You know, we all have things that we overlook, and that's what we're here to do with this podcast. Shine a light on the things that, you know, into the crevices that you may have overlooked. Mm-hmm. Yes, I mean, this is, a, this is a deep crevice for me, and, you know, what is, what, what is behind this? And so after you contacted me about this, um, I took a deep dive deep into my psyche and, and thought about, well, what is it about this artist? And what is it about this album that I have overlooked and potentially passed by, um, you know, during my my bin flipping ventures? And at the end of the day, we're all human, right? And so my familiarity with Cheryl Lynn and her catalog certainly encompassed, and I'm making the air quotes now, only the hit. Mm-hmm. So I don't even recall if I have seen this record out in the wild. Perhaps I have. Perhaps I haven't. But if I have seen it, I've likely flipped right past it and, you know, thought to myself, eh, got to be real. What more is there? You know, I'm, I'm seeing this generic low budget cover, which admittedly, that's exactly the kind of thing I would generally been in, be interested in checking out. So I don't know mm-hmm. why, if I have seen that, that I flip past it. You know, I've seen it featured on commercials, you know, on TV in the past. I remember there was an L.L. Bean commercial for, you know, a quilted vest or something like that. And I'm like, all right, yeah, got to be real. I mean, I have a copy of the 7-inch. It's in my, again, air quotes, uh, cheesy disco section, because, you know, being a disco file such as myself, we we classify and organize and sort our disco by um, different uh, levels of cheesiness, or perhaps it's only me, but hey, you know, I think we can all kind of gauge what I mean by the cheesy disco. So I think that my approach to Sherilyn and her music has admittedly been very close-minded. I mean, have I danced to the hit 
got to be real in clubs. Yes. Do I like the song? Yeah, sure. It's fine. I'm not offended by it. But in what might be in, I'd buy that for a dollar first, possibly. And correct me if I'm wrong, Peter, but you know, when you said, would you join us for this? If you're not familiar with this album, I think it's right up your alley. Mm -hmm. And um, all I can say is I am so glad that you did. <laughs> well, I'm glad to help. And yeah, we, we'll talk a whole lot more about all that. But I, how about we get to that hit? Let's do it. We are going to start off with side one, track one, the hit. We have got to be real. that's a hit i noticed though upon re-listening more critically that bass slays in that song <laughs> mm -hmm. it's got some like true thunder to it mm -hmm. super funky super on time though yeah and uh yeah that's what jumped out at me kind of listening more critically yeah that's one of my all-time favorite bass parts in music this is one of my all-time favorite tracks I don't know if even song is right because I feel like it's specifically this performance. <laughs> I don't know if I can't imagine anyone covering this either. <laughs> True. I mean, you know, the the performance of the musicians and then Cheryl Lynn's voice on top of it, it just everything comes together perfectly. I once back in the pre music on the internet days, I once scoured the cheapo CD bins of a Meyer, which is a, uh, how would we describe Meyer to the non-Michigan listeners? It's 
just a mega store. It's well, like a regional less evil Walmart. <laughs> yeah, there you go. <laughs> uh, I I uh, scoured just the the cheapo compilation bins for hours in the middle of the night because they're a twenty four hour store, trying to find this song because I needed it. I had heard it on a television show or in a commercial, and I just I needed to hear this song. I needed to have it in my life, and I found it finally on. A collection and uh, just play it over and over and over again. It's it's such a banger. Now, Peter, you say you can't imagine anyone covering this song. Are you meaning to tell me that you are not familiar with the Shark Tale soundtrack from two thousand four? Have you I, have you not heard the cover version of this done by Mary J. Blige and Will Smith? I, I saw. I did see that it it was on there. I have not heard it. I haven't listened to it yet either. I'm just happy that it exists. Although Mary, I mean Mary J. Blige, great voice. So if anyone was going to do it, she might pull it off. I haven't heard it though, mm-hmm. so I can't say. I'd like to hear Melba Moore cover it. That could that work. Would work. Yeah, I could see that hitting. And the thing about this song to me is, um, I mean, it's familiar. It's good. It grooves. Makes me want to dance. And I think that if we're all around a certain age, it's probably interwoven within our musical vernacular it's just it's just always kind of been there and it's just one of those reliable songs and i definitely feel like until i've taken this deeper dive to listen to Sherilyn's music a little more critically as one of you just said i'm really realizing wow there is a lot to this song and it is just so incredibly well produced the musicianship is killer it's a total banger like one of you just said but one of the things that I that stands out to me is that I remember this song when I was a young girl and then certainly, you know, young adult, teenage, and now at this age that I am. And when I hear Cheryl Lynn's voice, regardless of when I heard this when I was a kid or a, a teen, I still think that this song is that the singer is, you know, at least like 30 years older than I am. I mean, her vocals and her vocal range, she is just so developed and it's so deep and and just rich. And, you know, her voice is like an instrument when she kicks in with that key change. change it just blows my mind. Mm-hmm. And I was shocked to find out uh, when I took a deeper dive into learning a little bit about Cheryl Lynn that she was only 21 years old when she recorded this vocal, which I think is crazy. Yeah, it's very impressive. Yeah. I, I was very surprised to learn that too. And I was also surprised to learn that this song has a Toto connection. <laughs> <laughs> the, uh, it was written by David Page of Toto, who's the son of Marty Page, the arranger, producer. We talked about him on a very, very early episode, Spirit. He was the arranger on that record. And he also worked on the Sammy Davis Jr. record that we covered. Oh, nice. Yeah, we've, he's come up a few times on the podcast, and both Marty and David Page, father and son, produced this record, correct, Leora? That's correct, yes. They both produced it, and one of the great things about this song, though, is, as I just mentioned, you know, Cheryl Lynn's 21 years old. She, was, she has the first credit as being the writer of this song. Mm-hmm. Now, granted, the lyrics aren't uh, incredibly sophisticated or complicated, but that's still pretty impressive 
you know, that she is playing with the big kids just as well as anyone out there, especially considering the sequence of where this record and this particular single falls um, within the span of her career, which we'll get into shortly. So that was very impressive to me. Yeah. And I also think it, it's an interesting time in music as well. We're at 1978. So we're kind of at, and correct me if, if you think I'm wrong or if you beg to disagree, but 78, you know, we're kind of at the height of the disco mania. But at the same time, people are getting hip to the fact that this is just overly commercialized and they're starting to, many artists are starting to turn away from this particular genre of, you know, flat out disco per se and exploring other avenues of sound, which, you know, I would likely consider this song to be, as opposed to a disco song, more of a dance music song or um, crossover territory where they're exploring just another another level and some additional depth instead of a straight up four on the floor. Mm -hmm. Yeah. When I was younger in my na naivety, I, I thought of this strictly as a disco song. And then the more I learned, I was like, oh, maybe it's not so much. Yeah, this album overall, there's like some pretty obvious and strong disco influence, but there's some kind of leaning away, like you said, from that. And I was kind of confused myself that it's her first album. I was thinking like, oh, this must be like her third or fourth because she put out a bunch of disco songs. But no, she started off like already kind of in that movement away from disco. Yeah, which is very intriguing to me. And as you know, as you just pointed out, this is her first album. Um, and as I mentioned earlier, this is the first of, of nine records that she put out. And when you think about that, you think about the, the writing partners and the production partners who she was paired with, they nailed it right off the bat. You're like 21 years old, you're putting out your first record, and you end up recording Got To Be Real. And this song peaked at number 12 on the Hot 100 record chart, and, and it was number one on the Rhythm and Blues chart. So right out of the gate, she's, she's running. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and it's uh, it has some longevity to it as well. Like you said, it's kind of remained in the spotlight to some extent. It's one that you still hear. A lot of songs from that era have been forgotten, and I think this one is just moving out of a more dated sound enough that it's uh, remained popular. I couldn't I, I couldn't agree with you more. Uh, probably when we're done recording this, I'm going to have to reshuffle that and, and think <laughs> about where this belongs because. I don't think this belongs next to YMCA anymore. <laughs> it's, you know, there's some cheesiness. It's still disco, but it's not YMCA cheesy. <laughs> yeah, well, that's the section where it resides right now. So, okay. so we need yeah. to rectify that for sure. Well, so how about this? Instead of feeling guilty about not uh, knowing this ahead of time, you can just instead feel excited about how many more hidden gems there are in the dollar bins to be discovered. Well, that's what we're all here for, right? Exactly. We're all learning together. <laughs> Sean, do you want to be my therapist? Yes, please. <laughs> as long as it only involves record digging. Musical uh, therapist. Okay, cool. <laughs> so next time I get agita and anxiety about whether or not I should make a purchase, I'm, I'm just going to reach out. Because sometimes you've got that record in your hand. You're like, do I do it? Do I not do it? Am I going to regret it? Is it going to be here when I get back? That's it. 
reaching out to you. You're going to be on speed dial. All right. I'm ready. <laughs> Coach me through it. <laughs> well, there is more to Cheryl in than this song. And I think it's time to uh, bestow upon our listeners the deep heat that is the second song on this album, All My Lovin'. This one is exclusively written by Cheryl Lynn, and it is fire. You say you feel the love that's real. You want my time so you can feel the love that you can call your own. Now don't you know? So the last track, Jeremy was talking about how the bass played by David Shields was the real standout and elevated the song. And once again, the bass kills it on here, but it's really that guitar part by Ray Parker Jr. that just completely elevates this into a classic track. Yeah, that that rockin' distortion on the chorus. Oh, man. Com- combined with her vocals. I get chills every time. Yeah. Oof, it's so good. Yeah, yeah. before I, I picked this a physical copy of this up pretty recently. I believe I picked it up in Detroit people's records just a month ago. He's wanted to brag that you got to go to people's records again. <laughs> are, are, is that one of your favorite places, Jeremy? No, I haven't been there yet. Oh, well, but I've heard of it. You'll be bragging after you go. I know that's <laughs> what I keep hearing. It's especially if you're looking for soul music. Anyway, <laughs> he totally threw me off. <laughs> <laughs> He's getting revenge for the the other episode where you kept <laughs> sidetracking. Oh God, yeah, <laughs> yeah. So I I had been listening to this on Spotify a fair amount, and it had been a while since I listened to it. And when I put it on, and you know, of course, I know got to be real front to back. 
very well but as soon as it got to all my love in this song i was like yes that's right <laughs> this this is the cut right here i i, I think i might you know as, as much as got to be real one of my all-time favorite tracks that one right there is, might even elevate just a little bit beyond it because i don't hear it as much that that's that one is not out in the world like got to be real is all I can say is that when I heard this, which this is track two off the record um, sequentially, I wish that there was a candid camera watching me because this is not the direction that I was expecting at all. I mean, I heard this and, you know, it starts off smooth enough. But then the song just elevates into what I would consider this really unexpectedly raw, and funky, and stanky. Mm. Holy moly. Like, did that catch me completely off guard? And I mean, I think that my eyes were bugging out of my head. And Peter, I, I picked up my phone and messaged you. <laughs> and I was like, holy crap. I am so just, yeah. you know, put me in the corner. I don't deserve to be here right now for overlooking this. Um, you know, like it kind of reminded me, uh, there was a video floating around on YouTube a few years ago um, of these kids who were filming themselves hearing songs for the first time. And I remember one of them was a Hall and Oates song and they're just kind of sitting in there and they've got their headphones on and they kind of jump out of their seats and they're like, whoa, whoa, what's up here? Like, this is crazy good. And that was exactly my reaction to this song when I heard it. I mean, I was not expecting this woman to get so stanky and so funky. And I mean, to me, the first time hearing this song, there was this real Rick James Mm-hmm. It struck me their vocal delivery as being this real funky Rick James kind of vibe to it. And it it, it it just blew me out of the water. It was not what I was expecting. And it was such a welcome surprise. That's a good comparison, Rick James. That is kind of the direction <laughs> that that song takes. Yeah, not what you expected from Cheryl Lynn. You know, and, you know it's like, what did you expect? You didn't know. You, you just, you, you, she's kind of a... You think of her as this one trick pony because it's the only, you know, there's only one song you hear. And uh, there's some surprises on this record, and we're not done with them either. <laughs> no. And the family tree surrounding the record, too great. Too great yeah. to overlook. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, how about we learn a little bit now, Liara, about who is Cheryl Lynn? Who is this uh, mysterious person that, as Jeremy says, has two first names? <laughs> yeah, two first names. <laughs> yeah, so Cheryl Lynn, she's quite, well, I don't want to say she's completely enigmatic, but let's just say that uh, there's not a ton of information out there to be had, especially for somebody with a fresh pair of eyes to and, and willingness to learn about this artist, um, such as myself. But what I was able to to figure out about her She was born in Los Angeles in 1957, and like several other artists, and certainly several other artists discussed uh, previously on the pod, um, she was a child of the church, and her mother was a musical director of a church, and she grew up singing in the choir, and she continued to do so throughout her adulthood. She ended up going to university for speech therapy, and ended up ditching her studies to follow her heart and pursue acting and singing. 
which uh, that gave me a little bit of a chuckle when I learned that about her. It reminded me of the story of Melba Moore, who was a teacher. And the siren of the performing arts just kept calling to her. And she said, you know what? No more teaching. I'm going to pursue this. So very similar path for Cheryl Lynn as well. I feel like we run into the same proto story over and over of artists first learning music in church and then going to college and leaving college to go do music. (laughs) Yeah, it's, it's, well, at least the two times I've appeared on I'd Buy That, that's been the case. So um, they say third time's a charge, <laughs> third time's a charm. <laughs> it's been on quite a few of the ones we've we've done, that same story. So it's like the hero's journey, but for musicians, the, I guess. It's that, that old, uh, you know, chestnut of, of musician storytelling, <laughs> learning in church and then dropping out of college. And she's an Angelino, right? She's from Los Angeles. That's right. Yes. Yeah. And what I find really interesting about her, her personal background and her story, what I wanted to know outside of being a child of the church and that kind of gospel style of, of singing and performance, what I would have really liked to have learned about her, which I was I was unable to you know, f- really find a lot out there about this, but I would like to know what really her musical input or who her musical influences were. <laughs> I struggled to find any reference to her really mentioning that. Like Exactly, exactly. It's one thing to to say, you know, I was I grew up in a church singing these hymns, but I want to know if there were any, you know, outside of any of the, you know, kind of secular artists, if there were any popular artists who she admired or popular artists um, whose style she aspired to. And I came up null and void. Yeah. That adds to the the element of Cheryl Lynn being an enigma in my book, because I'd like to know, you know, what, what really informed her music. And we we just really don't have a sense of that right now. But when she did continue to follow her musical sirens, so to speak, where she did end up was easing on down the road in a touring production of The Wiz. So that's kind of where she landed once she started following that, that path. And she eventually went on to play the part of the Wicked Witch of the West in that production. That continues to follow the trajectory of the Melba Moore story that we <laughs> talked about the, when, the last time you were on, the musical theater direction. Exactly, uh, yes. Mel- Melba did hair, right? That's correct. Yes. Yep. That's how she got her start. Well, not technically how she got her start, but that was um, a very big stepping stone for Melba in her Mm -hmm. career. And uh, from what I gather, this touring production of The Wiz was certainly a stepping stone for Cheryl Lynn and her enigmatic story because kind of don't hear anything else in in between, you know, oh, I'm, I'm going to not continue to pursue my studies and pursue music instead. And and here we are with The Wiz. So that's that. But it was around the time of The Wiz. And here's where some other conflicting uh, pieces of information came across my screen as well. I was reading that her manager encouraged her to audition for The Gong Show. And then in another area, I read that her partner, her boyfriend at the time, who was slash manager, encouraged her to, to audition for the gong show. And she ended up performing a rendition of 
you are so beautiful, which many of us associate with Joe Cocker, right? Like very soulful guy. That is the cover of the song that I think is mostly in, in the musical vernacular when people hear you are so beautiful. But that was actually, Joe Cocker was actually covering Billy Preston. Billy Preston wrote and originally performed that song. Yeah, that was news. That was news to me when we were talking about stuff. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Did not know that was a Billy Preston song. Yeah, and the two versions are certainly um, quite different from one another. I, I gave both of them a listen. In addition to actually pursuing a clip of Cheryl on YouTube actually performing on the Gong Show. And that really opened my eyes up also to have a better understanding of exactly the level of talent that she was bringing to the table. Her performance, although the video was a little grainy that I was able to view, her performance was absolutely phenomenal. It was really touching, very moving, very, very deep. I guess there's an urban legend out there that Cheryl got a perfect score for her performance on the gong show, but the reality of it is that she only earned 21 points out of 30. And like I just said, seeing that clip really solidified to me what an incredible instrument she has. And one of the judges on her on her um, on the evening of her performance of the gong show was Della Reese, iconic jazz and gospel singer. And I particularly loved watching Della Reese's reaction when she had to present her score because Della Reese just pretty much stone-faced held up her number and said, well, she turned me on. And mm-hmm. it was just this really moving performance. And, and Della's just like, yeah, she turned me on. And I just, I got a chuckle out of that. And I feel like that performance was really, even though she had been touring with The Wiz, I mean, that performance was really what probably gave her an an abundance of exposure. The Gong Show was huge at that point, and and the exposure was invaluable. And it it did just so happen that after that, that, that performance and that appearance on there, that some of the major labels started buying for her. And at the end of the day, she ended up signing with Columbia Records toward the tail end of 1977. And she remained on the Columbia label until 1985. And it's really at this point where her recording career blossomed. And not only signing with Columbia provided her certainly with an opportunity to begin recording her own material as an artist and, you know, teaming up with David and what have you. But it was also around this time that she had the opportunity to connect with other artists. And she began singing in a backup capacity and reading about some of the backup work that she did for some, at the the time, more established artists. I was really pleased to discover that she sang backup on Eddie Kendricks' album, Slick, which I don't know if you're all familiar with that album, but um, in particular, the song Intimate Friends, that song sends me, I don't know about you, but any saucy Valentine's mix that I make, Intimate Friends is absolutely on there. That is just a killer song to me. And she's on that one. Yes. As I say, I love Eddie Kendricks, but that's one of his that I'm not familiar with, so I'll have to pick up a copy when I can. Oh, intimate friends. You better get intimate with intimate friends. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I know, uh, is it people hold on and boogie down and maybe cut one or two others, but that one's new. Not, I'm not familiar with, with slick. 
Yeah, you should give it a listen. You should give it a listen for sure. Because it's slick. I mean, it's Eddie Kendricks. What else can I say about that? <laughs> it's Eddie Kendricks. Yeah, yeah. The seal of approval. Yeah. So with intimate friends at the very least gets my seal of approval. Fast forward in in the in the timeline of the Cheryl Lynn's history, fast forward just about a year later, 1978, and her debut album, Cheryl Lynn, is released. And as we touched upon previously, you know, that that reached number 23, went to top five R&B. The record itself earned a gold plaque. And um, a couple of the tracks that we will be listening to shortly um, gave that album a little extra boost on the charts as well. And around this time, you know, we mentioned David Page. And Peter, I'll let you elaborate on on the Toto connection and, and some of the songs that Cheryl may have had a hand in as well. Yeah, yeah, we will do that. Uh, do we want to listen to another single from this album before we move on? Absolutely. Well, one of the other singles was Star Love. While the song has a beautiful intro, it also has, I don't even know how to describe it, uh, vocalizations that are out of this world stuff that i was not expecting from cheryl lynn and we're gonna start in the middle of the track and uh i don't even i guess we'll just listen and we'll come back and talk about it so this is star love side a track three
I am just wiping a tear from my eye. Oh my God. How good is that? That is so, <laughs> so good. Cheryl's like, got pipes. Like chef's kiss. Like that's, that's where we're at. Like that is so good. Okay, I'm having a moment here. I'm just going to come down a little bit. Come down from the space and and the star love and and come back to earth here. But that's really where that song sends me. And if you want to talk about just, we were talking about all my loving and how I wasn't expecting that from this record. I mean, I certainly was not expecting this. So the track is called Star Love. It's the second charting single from the record. It, It hit number 20 on the Hot 100 number nine on the on the U.S. soul chart. And I mean, the track starts off with that slow female disco song prefix, similar to Last Dance or No More Tears or Love Hangover. And then it's just like, blam! Before you know it, you are punched in the gut. This killer bass line, these really raw sounding drums that are just so forward in the mix and, and these spacey synths that they all just work together. This, this confluence of funk that it just, to me, takes up so much space sonically and it just booms. And, and man, do I wish I could have heard that on the dance floor on the right sound system way back when. But not only that, the, the way that this song showcases Cheryl's voice. I mean, her voice is just crazy killer in here. It transcends to a complete, un, like, otherworldly level at the end, as we just heard. I mean, it took me a couple of tries of listening to this to even figure out if, if it had transitioned from Cheryl's actual vocalization to some sort of synth. But no, that's her voice. And I mean, the only way I can describe it, it's acrobatic. Like her, like her voice is just engaging in these acrobatic-like sequences to the point of it being guttural. And it just killed me. Just killed me. Mind blown. Yeah. yeah. Being that it's her debut album, I am impressed that the producers would allow her to just unleash like that. You know, it's... It's not necessarily something that you would think of as being a commercial move, <laughs> but I mean, it, it, it just works so well. You're just taken, like you said, to another place when she goes there. Yeah. I mean, you know, the whole theme of the song is this star love and, and what is one of the lines? Like, I want to make Milky Way blush to see the light or to see the sight of making star love in the night. I mean, you know, she's, they're trying to get in this completely transcendent mood. And I think that the juxtaposition of, of these synths, right? Like, like these kind of twinkly, sparkling synths with what I consider to be a little dissimilar to the other songs we were talking about, particularly Got To Be Real, where we were kind of saying that it, it didn't necessarily sound like a straight up four on the floor. But but with this song, the rhythm is definitely straight up four on the floor. And there's something about it that I don't know if it's because the drums are so forward in this mix or what, but it's very rudimentary to me, but it just slays. And yeah, this song transcends me exactly up to the level of, of where where they were trying to get us just does it for me. (laughs) Well, let's talk about 
these musicians, these players. I'll start by uh, where you kind of left off with uh, talking about David Page and the Toto connection. So he's the producer, along with his father, Marty Page, on this record. And he's also playing the keys. And he was in the group Toto. And, of course, also worked, as many people know, although some may not, they worked with Michael Jackson. Toto are effectively the backing band on Thriller. David Page also worked with Boz Skaggs. And, of course, as we mentioned, he's the son of Marty Page. So he was born into uh, the music industry. I feel like that's kind of what Toto were. They were like the strokes of their time. Because uh, isn't uh, Joseph Williams is the son of composer John Williams. Joseph Williams from Toto is the son of John Star Wars, Raiders of the Lost Ark, mm-hmm. etc. Williams. Other players, those drums. Got to talk about those drums. James Gadson, one of the most recorded drummers in the history of R&B. Just to name a few tracks that he's on, he's on Express Yourself by Charles Wright and the Watts 103rd Street Band. Smoking. He's on Yeah, he's on Lean on Me by Bill Withers, Dancing Machine by the Jackson 5. He was on the Warm Thoughts album by Smokey Robinson that we covered on the podcast. Uh, more recently, he's been on albums by Beck, Justin Timberlake, Lana Del Rey, and D'Angelo. So yes, he was the dr- one of the drummers or the drummer on Black Messiah just a few years ago. On bass, the bass that we've been talking about, David Shields, a Detroit-born player. He worked with Patti LaBelle, Bobby Womack, Jackie DeShannon the Memphis Horns, and the Blackbirds. Now, the funny thing is, I'll I'll mention this, is that there are two different lineups of musicians on this album. The three tracks that we've heard have been the same lineup. And the other lineup features, I would argue, a better-known name as a bass player, Chuck Rainey. And it really surprised me when I found out, no, it's not Chuck Rainey doing that really memorable, infectious bass on Got To Be Real. That's David Shields. We'll talk more about that lineup when we get to our last song, the other lineup. We'll, we'll talk about them because they are on the fe- last song that we're going to feature. So, yeah, we got the drums, we got the bass, talked about the keys, and of course, we, Sean already mentioned very early on, he he told me before we started recording that he was going to, every opportunity he could, talk about Ray Parker Jr. <laughs> on <laughs> on the guitar. And... I don't blame him because, you know, Ray Parker Jr. is a name that people know because why, Jeremy? He's the Ghostbuster guy. (laughs) That's how we all know him. Well, but Sean knows him as so much more than that, right, Sean? Yeah, I I think we we gave him a proper shout out on, um, oh shoot, what what episode did we... we talked about him. Uh, Greg Kaz gave him him a really good plug on our Michael Henderson. Yes, episode. that was the yeah. one I was trying to think of. Both those names yep. just immediately escaped my head as I was about to <laughs> <laughs> mention them. <laughs> but yeah, Ray Parker is just one of those guys that gets written off and is mostly forgotten about. But he was the man behind the scenes on countless incredible records and is just like one of the most talented R&B funk guitarists that you will ever hear production talents on top of that songwriting talents he was an actor in a few movies the man could just do it all total genius yeah and he also would have been very young at this point he started very young Mm -hmm. i think he was like 16 right when he started 
Wasn't he? I, I thought I read somewhere that he was part of Bohannon's band. Yes. Yeah. And then ended up, yeah, like writing, co-writing a song with Marvin Gaye or something. Yeah, yeah. He got started real young. He was born in 54, so at the time of this record, he would have been 24. Yeah, yeah. He got started real young. And we we talked about, I think you, Sean, you brought him up on our Bohannon episode, you know, one of our first episodes. You talked about how we need to give more props to Ray Parker Jr. on the podcast. So, so we just been nice priming, yeah, we've been priming the people for years now. Eventually we'll do a radio record. Oh, 1978 when this record came out is the same year as the first radio record, by the way. So he was working on this album and, you know, getting ready for his big band's uh, debut to try and take the charts by storm. Liara, I think you need to tell our listeners uh, what you told us about radio before we started recording when we were talking in the green room. Oh, gosh. Okay. So <laughs> so who out there remembers the Yipsters from Sesame Street? So they, they, had this, they had this clip on Sesame Street where the Yipsters were the aliens who came down and were just mesmerized, came down to earth and were mesmerized by very simple, very simple things in in our our world here like uh, i remember there was one episode with a fan and they were kind of getting their their hair blown by the fan and there was one in particular where they were surrounding a an old-fashioned radio and for some reason every time i hear ray parker jr and the band radio in my head i get the yipsters going radio radio yip 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 (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and now all of you know that as well so okay <laughs> yeah you might have you might have just planted that out in the world now that other people are going to have that same experience now <laughs> well not only have i planted that out in the world but some people might actively seek it out on on you know the internet and perhaps i have carved a little joy in people's lives so let's get back to simpler times radio Laura, as far as uh, Cheryl's life or career, did you have anything you wanted to add to the story? Well, I mean, what can I say? I, I just think that Cheryl is is um, quite an, well, I, I, I want to say she's an interesting character. She's interesting in, in the sense that, as I alluded to earlier, she she's a bit enigmatic as far as, um, you know, personal life or influences and what have you. But um you know, after the release of of this debut album, Cheryl Lynn, she went on to apparently seamlessly navigate the late 70s and early 80s. And she worked with several talented musicians, as, as we've talked about, and, and producers. The release of Cheryl Lynn, as, as we also alluded to, marked um, her first release on Columbia, but this was the first of nine releases. And one of the things that I found to be interesting was that in my research, I learned that she almost consecutively released albums between the years of 1978 through 1989. Uh, the only years between that span where she missed releases were 1980, 84, 86, and 88. Some of those albums I admittedly have not listened to um, because I admittedly had not listened to the debut Cheryl in prior uh, to this past week. But I definitely look forward to having the opportunity to learn a little bit more and, and hear a little bit more about um, these records. In 79, she um, 
she had another club hit with a song called Keep It Hot. And then in 81, our favorite gentleman, who it sounds like Ray Parker Jr. might end up being the new Kashif or the updated Kashif of, of <laughs> I'd Buy That for a Dollar, Ray Parker and Radio, they were called in to produce Lynn's third album, which was called In the Night and featured a I guess what you would consider major dance and R&B single, Shake It Up, which I have yet to discover. And then in 1982, she released a record called Instant Love, which was produced by Luther Vandross. That album featured a single called If you know, If This World Were Mine, which was a duet with Luther and a cover version of a Marvin Gaye and Tammy Terrell song. So she kind of continued on from there, 1983, 85, 87. She hooked up during those years, uh, subsequent years, with Jimmy Jam and Terry Lewis, who are certainly active throughout the musical community and, and had some connections to what I would consider more modern-day artists like Janet Jackson. She also hooked up with members, um, you know, ex-members of the time and also D-Train. So as she progressed throughout her career releasing records, she just kind of was surrounded and 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 the spider branches or the spider web um spider branch what is that spider web just extended to you know all these great um musicians and and artists who were in her circle but to me it seems like she may have been very modest or personal by design um and that's something peter you know you and i were were chatting about a little bit that Maybe she didn't want to be in the spotlight, so to speak, as much as some other artists. But seeing who she was surrounded by and the quality of the music that um, she was releasing, that um, you know, she definitely had the potential to be in the spotlight. And one of the things that I found quite curious about her as well is that concurrently, while she was releasing these albums, of which I just referenced, she continued to sing backup for several artists. So she seemed to be a woman who liked to keep busy. And she did sing backup for Ray Parker Jr. and Luther and um, even Betty Wright, to name a few. While she was doing that, she was continuing on with her own career. And she just kept it going till about 1995. And around that time, she essentially pushed back from the music industry, didn't really have a lot to do with it. She was occasionally tapped to perform Got To Be Real because that was the hit and, and the world can't live without Got To Be Real. <laughs> and the tune ended up becoming certified platinum in 2001. And she actually uh, was honored by the Dance Music Hall of Fame for that song. It took until 2001 to sell a million copies of that single? Listen, it's got to be real. The music industry is really hard sometimes. So, yeah. <laughs> recognition yeah. recognition doesn't always come as easily as it should for artists. So, yeah. It was certified platinum in 2001. And then I think around um, 2000. Five, maybe 2006 that's when she was honored by the dance music hall of fame even between that time though throughout that time i guess that's when she hooked up with um jimmy jam again to to record sweet kind of life for the shark tale soundtrack which you all were speaking <laughs> of before i've never seen a shark tale i don't know if this is something i should be adding I, to my uh my cue or not I, I think that's uh, you and I. That that shows the age difference between 
yourself and myself and then Sean and Jeremy. The oh. being of the sh- the shark tail age. <laughs> what? Talk to me talk to me about Lion King, okay? Talk to me about Lion King. I don't even know what shark tail is. I didn't even know that was a thing that existed before this episode. <laughs> yeah, I'm just projecting on you. Uh, he okay. acts like we're children. Is that even Disney? I don't even know if that's Disney. I'm completely clueless when it comes to this stuff, really. You, I wasn't what? even into Disney when I was a kid. What do you know about it, Sean? You were the most enthused on this being a thing that we should know about. Uh, I know almost nothing about it. I'm not sure if I even saw the movie, so I'm glad that we're giving it this much airtime. So, Sean, what did you find for the Spotify playlist that sounded like Cheryl Lynn? Lots of good stuff. Uh, A lot of stuff that we mentioned on the episode. There's some Ray Parker and Radio. Melvin Moore. Billy Preston with the original version of You Are So Beautiful. There's a Donna Summer and Barbara Streisand track that Leora recommended, No More Tears. There's some Toto on there, so you can hear a little bit of that uh, R&B influence on the Toto sound when you put it in context with the other albums they were working on. Put a Spirit in Sammy Davis track, so you can hear some of the other Marty Page arranged stuff that we've covered before. There's a Slave song on there. Johnny Mathis and Denise Williams and Evelyn Champagne King. You can find that whole playlist on Spotify. Just search I'd Buy That Podcast, all one word. Oh, and I also included specifically a track from this album called Nothing You Say. That is one of my favorites that we did not get a chance to talk about on this episode, but you can check that out on there. That's the other band on this record that I don't think we actually talked about is on that track. There's there's two bands on this record. There's the Ray Parker Jr. one that we mentioned, and then uh, half the songs on the album feature legends such as Chuck Rainey, Bernard Purdy, David T. Walker, uh, Richard T., and DJ Rogers is on a couple of the tracks, too. There's Man, there's so many good players on this record all over the place. Yeah, Bernard Purdy, he had worked as Aretha Franklin's musical director for the first half of the 70s, and he... Played on some James Brown albums as well, and he had a drum style named the after Purdy him. The Purdy Shuffle. The Purdy Shuffle. Yeah. Yep. yep. And if, yeah, of course, yeah, Chuck Rainey, of course, Steely Dan, The Rascals, Aretha Franklin, Etta James, Quincy Jones. That's just scratching the very tip of the surface. Uh, David T. Walker, of course, Sean has sang the praises of David T. Walker on the podcast before. Yeah, one of my all time favorite guitarists. It's interesting because, like, when I was revisiting this record. I looked at the the lineup and I was like, Oh shit. Like Bernard Purdy and David T Walker on a bunch of these tracks. Those are going to be my favorites, but the Ray Parker jr. Tracks just upstaged them the whole time, <laughs> uh, except for like a couple key moments when the other band really shines too. But I think it also speaks to how cool of a record this is where there's, there's a good variety of material on here. It's not just the up-tempo disco stuff. There's a little bit of jazz. There's some reggae rhythms going on in one of the tracks. There's some ballads worth picking up a star studded affair. Yeah. Yeah. We'll get to uh, the track featuring the other band in just a moment here, but Leora, is there anything that uh, you would like to plug before we get out of here? Any socials or anything you have coming up? Um, sure. So I can be found on Instagram and probably the only reason why I'm still on Instagram is because of, um, well, people like you, my handle on there is Leora Haas and I'm just all about the music on there. And I love 
sharing music and and learning about music on there. And um, I know in a previous I'd Buy That episode, you guys were talking with, I think it was Lola Kinks, about the wonderful community that you've all have built, that you all have built. And um, I couldn't agree with you more. I think that the I'd Buy That community is great. And and, um, I think the last time that I appeared on here, I mentioned that music should be shared. And I just, I still agree with that. I'm still, I'm still tooting my own horn and, and telling that story. Like people like to latch on to music and get, they get very protective of it and say, well, I discovered this band first, you know, and everybody else who likes it, blah, blah, blah. But it's all about sharing the good vibes and, and sharing the knowledge. And let's all continue to do that together and spread the good vibes. Well said. Yeah. So cool to see guests such as yourself getting to know other guests we've had like uh mark dj mahogany (laughs) oh my word what a sweetheart i love mark so much we just instantly connected over our love of disco and dance music and um talk about a a great co-host as well absolutely and great great supporter of pod well we are going to get out of here you have chosen to leave us with the song daybreak subtitled Storybook Children, correct, Leora? That's correct, yes, because every good record with unexpected stink and funk needs that ballad on it, right? And this is this is one of a couple ballads on this record. And um, I think it, it think it does um, does does this work justice by sending it off on a slower note. One of the things I noticed about this record is that it's um, primarily love and relationship themed. There are not a lot of other topics I don't think being discussed on here. So Daybreak Storybook Children and a nice little story. And in my mind, I have this vision of um, Cheryl Lynn kind of on the magic carpet floating through space on this song, not too dissimilar from the uh, Benny Mardonis video, which is kind of creepy, Into the Night. You guys ever see that video? I don't think I'm familiar. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Uh, well, uh, a link is in your future. I'll be sending that to you. But he's pretty much on this magic carpet ride through through the stars. And um, I think that this song is a, a great closer to cap off the record and, and straight up ballad that showcases the uh, softer side of Cheryl Lynn's voice as well. Beautiful. All right. Yeah. And this will feature the other band that we talked about that we haven't heard from yet. So Thank you so much, Leora. Thank you, listeners, for tuning in to another fine episode of I'd Buy That for a Dollar. My name is Peter Cook. My name is Uh, Jeremy Ruggles. I'm Sean Hartman. And I'm Leora Haas. Beside you, you were the only one I ever cried to. The night is through, and now it's heartache. I should be home before he sees it's daybreak. Light from the sky is shining through the. 
understand. 